I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. Hi everyone, today I'm joined by Dr. Rebecca D'Souza, a professor from the Department of Communication at the University of Minnesota at Duluth. We are talking about her work on hunger and the limits of organizing access to food through charitable organizations. Today's episode is part of a series of conversations on defining moments that are really about how food communicates and how we communicate about food from production to consumption, even disposal. Today, we're focused on Rebecca's critically acclaimed book titled Feeding the Other, Whiteness, Privilege, and Neoliberal Stigma. It was published in in 2019 by MIT Press. Last summer, I received a copy, autographed, I might add, and I'm going to be honest, I I picked up the book and it was difficult to put it down. I integrated it in a doctoral seminar I taught in the fall. Many of the ideas and arguments continue to both haunt me and inspire me. So thank you for your work, Rebecca, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Lynn. I really appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to be on this podcast. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And of course, your support for my work. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Um, I think you're a rock star, and I think that your work is incredibly important. And truth be told, it's not always a comfortable read because you demand reflexivity on the part of those of us who enter into your work. And that can be uncomfortable, but that's also what makes it um, so original and so inspiring. So let's step back for a second, Rebecca. Um, In general, you describe the overarching goal of your work as seeking to understand the emancipatory potential of communication. I've seen this evidenced in your work ranging from community empowerment in South India to the politics of food. So I'm wondering if you can talk to us about what it means to you to study the emancipatory potential of communication and why this is so central to the work that you do. Sure. And thank you for this question. I actually had to uh, reflect on it for a little bit because I think I'd sort of forgotten the roots of my work for a little while. And I was Mm. trying to um, trace where I got this word emancipatory from. And then I was recalling my uh, time in graduate school and how inspired I was by the work of Paulo Freire, and I still am. And it's really his pedagogy of the oppressed which sort of set me on this path and down this road. And so I think I drew that word emancipatory um, from that idea of liberation and really Paulo Freire is sort of this, you know, the forerunner of the liberation theology movement in South America. And so that's really where this comes from trying to understand how communication and the study of communication can liberate us uh, from 
um, social, economic, or political chains of oppression. And I really do believe that communication and the discipline of communication has an important role to play in that. Um, and my question for the last um, you know, 10 year, years has been trying to understand how we as a discipline can respond to one of the grandest challenges of our time, which is the question of justice and equity and how to ensure more just and equitable societies moving forward. Uh, so I'm interested in communication processes from the micro to the macro level. Many of us in communication tend to sort of work um, at different, at particular scales. You know, we sort of split it up into sort of uh, internal processes, perceptual and cognitive. And then we talk about interpersonal com communication, group, organizational communication. For me, what is um, most powerful of communication is the ability to uh, make link linkages between and among all of those different scales. So trying to understand how perceptions and framing and uh, relationship building, dialogue, all of those, how those become inscribed in policies and political processes. That for me is, um, is the most powerful work that I think I can do to show how these, uh, what seems really mundane and ordinary, become inscribed in our very environments and then act and serve to oppress people. So um, that's one of the ways I think my work can be responsive to this um, broader question of equity. And that's sort of the spirit in which I use that term emancipatory potential of communication. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. From the personal to the political, they're interconnected. Uh, we cannot separate our lived stories from those broader social, political, economic structures. Right. Recently, You've, you've taken this interest right, from the mundane environments to the more extraordinary moments that we find ourselves in. Um, you've taken those interests and you've kind of focused your energies on issues of hunger as interrelated with poverty and as connected to, to broader social structures that are raced, that are gendered in nature. What led you to kind of focus on um, the issues that find themselves at the center of, of your recent book? Yeah, you know, there. I think there were a lot of different um, influences that led this book, um, that led to this research, but then also led to the particular story that I tell in the book, or the stories that I tell in the book. Uh, you know, I should say that, you know, my previous work um, uh, was on how people living with HIV and AIDS in India mobilized and organized themselves for rights and resources. And I'm originally from India, and so I was trying to find a way uh, to study the places and the people that I was closest to. And when I was in that context, I was looking at the intersections of poverty and health, and uh, poverty being sort of um, uh, one of the largest determinants of our health, right? I mean, sickness kills, um, and poverty um, kills people. Uh, and mm -hmm. so that was really what I was seeing in India. And then I moved to Duluth, you know, and got, got, got a job here. And that's really why I moved to Duluth. And I see some of those same structural um, conditions over here, the lack of access to 
healthcare, the lack of access to food. And it was really this particular moment when my spouse and I, and we weren't married at the time, but we were driving in this new city that we had just moved to and saw this huge line of people outside um, the Kapadop Church, which is sort of situated on this big hill in Duluth. And that's where Ruby's Pantry, one of the organizations that I feature in the book, uh, was having his, its distribution, food distribution. And so there was this really long line outside. And that really got me thinking about um, hunger and food insecurity in this particular region. It was also really surprising to me, and you know, this is why I sort of started out talking about HIV and AIDS, because I, they're sort of very similar in some ways. Their underlying roots are the same. Uh, it's still poverty, it's, it's injustice, it's political disempowerment that, that creates both of these problems that makes us more susceptible to HIV and AIDS, and that makes us more likely to be hungry as well. And what was interesting is that a, an article that I'd read during my work on HIV and AIDS sort of became almost the center point of this new book. And that was um, an article by Richard uh, Parker, and he talked about the political economy of stigma. And he was um, using this phrase in the context of the stigma and prejudice and discrimination surrounding HIV sort of at this global scale. And he was arguing that it's, you know, we can talk about stigma at sort of an interpersonal level or even internalized stigma, but what we really need to be thinking about is how stigma is really the product of power and unequal power and who gets to label people as um, less than or inferior. And what are these processes of domination and subordination that create stigma? So, so in his view, stigma was sort of this a political product or political outcome. And that that phrase, the political economy of stigma, stuck with me. And so when I started to see uh, people talking about stigma in uh, my data or through the interviews that I was doing with people who uh, experience hunger and food insecurity, uh, those notes sort of rang true here as well. And I started to sort of make those connections about stigma, not only in terms of it being internal and per interpersonal, but also that it's connected to our very policies and laws and our legal system and the, and the very structures that we put up. I think for me, it was this really um, sort of uh, awakening moment when I realized that food pantries themselves are these monuments to stigma. You know, they are racialized, um, class, classed monuments. Um, and sort of the infrastructure that stigma um, flourishes within. Uh, and so that's um, sort of what drove me in this direction. And of course, you know, food pantries are everywhere, so it's hard to miss them. It's hard not to be involved in them uh, because we're always being asked to donate or to give our time or resources to food pantries. Um, and so that was really, you know, so it was all of these different pieces. And I, though initially, I think when I went into the research, I was really coming at it from a health, from a very solid sort of health communication and even a public health perspective. I was asking questions like, you know, how do people cope with hunger and food insecurity? How do they manage it? What are the meanings of health and food uh, that people create or co-create with me as um, uh, the researcher in this um, in this process? And 
and that is all in the book and it sort of is featured in the book but for me the 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 dots that sort of connected across all of the stories across all of these scales was really this political or this politicized form of stigma um and so that's what i ended up writing about and of course in the book i make this argument that that politicized form of stigma which i call neoliberal stigma is so deeply connected to race and not just race in terms of how uh, in terms of you know people of color black indigenous and people of color but also in terms of white people and white people who occupy these particular monuments or infrastructure um, that holds and contains stigma so mm-hmm. a lot of different things thrown out there, but so, but that just to show you that there were just a lot of different influences that led me to write this particular book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of its hallmarks, Rebecca, is that it is based on extensive what what in the academy we describe as ethnographic fieldwork research methods on your part that are used to understand and evaluate communication processes. For listeners who are unfamiliar with, with ethnography and interpretive research, can you walk us through the four years of fieldwork and your research design and what, what it is that allowed you to offer the arguments that you make, the arguments that move between the personal lived stories and the, the broader political statement that, that needs to be made. Right. So thank you. I think that's, that's a really great question. Um, so I think ethnography is um, done in a variety of different ways. And I think there are as many ways in which to do ethnography as there are ethnographers. But for me, I think, you know, very simple understanding of ethnography, it's using oh, ethnographic fieldwork is that, and in my work, I use the principles of social science to um, gather data in the real world, right? So that's kind of what I'm doing. Um, and I see them as sort of uh, at least two separate processes, but that are also that play into each other and are iterative in some ways. So there's a data collection process, and then there's the data analysis process. And of course, both of those sometimes go together. But I was starting out very broad, with some very broad research questions. Um, for example, I was asking, you know, how the experience of neoliberal stigma intersects with embodied experience of class, race, and gender. And that was one of the questions I was asking. Another one that I was interested in uh, was about organizational discourses and practices that produce, create, or disrupt neoliberal stigma. And here, the organizations that I was interested in were two um, food pantries, and um, they are food pantries that also have sort of organizations that are linked to them. And one was Ruby's Pantry, and the other um, was Charmin. So these were the two organizations that I used, and I developed what I call, or what we might call, case studies around them. So I was telling in the book, I tell the stories of these two organizations as they relate to these different concerns that I'm interested in. And in terms of uh, data collection, you know, what did that look like? Well, I, first of all, you know, and this is what I do in most of my work, I look to see what's already out there about these organizations. So looking at organizational documents that may be already public, annual reports, uh, media reports on these organizations, study their websites, 
Um, and, and that was actually quite a lot of material because both of these organizations had been in the news um, and had these, these sort of online presences. I also, and then came the more difficult part of the work, uh, which involved doing um, interviews with staff and volunteers at each of these organizations. And that, of course, involves uh, complicated IRB protocols. Um, and, and then in, in addition to those interviews, I also did participant observations. So um, I volunteered at both of these uh food pantries, and so the Chum Food Pantry in Duluth, and then the Ruby's Pantry uh, food distribution site in Duluth. And so those are the two places I volunteered at. I, didn't, I did it continuously at each for about three or four months, and then it intermittently after uh, for about four years. So each time I thought I was losing sense of these organizations, um, and I felt like I needed to be in place, um, I would go back and again um, to make sure that I was staying true to that particular context. Um, so that was that was a big part of the data collection, and that's the data that is presented in the book. But the other piece that you were asking about, you know, how do I draw connections between what's going on here at sort of these micro and meso levels to macro levels? Uh, that was a more complicated um, part and not that straightforward. So to get a sort of a lay of the land and to get a, a bird's eye view of what's going on, that involved, in addition to all of this work at Ruby's Pantry and Chum, it involved talking to many other food pantry staff and volunteers, people at other sites who were not part of sort of my formal data set. Um, mm -hmm. I also spoke to many policymakers. So USDA officials, for instance, city council members, county commissioners. I also um, got a lot of insight actually from the legal aid office in, in Minneapolis, which works on, um, which actually is involved in sort of this litigation work around um, food access. And so that was really insightful for me. Um, and in addition to that, then attending food conferences, speaking to activists, other people who were not necessarily in food pantries or working in food pantries, but who were part of the larger food justice movement or the so-called good food movement. Mm -hmm. uh, so all of that sort of provided that broader context of the um, sort of the policy landscape in which these two s smaller organizations were operating within. And for me, I think that was really important to contextualize the work that these food pantries were doing and to see that they were just so small in this foodscape that we have or these foodscapes that we have. So those are sort of all, that's all of the stuff that I did in terms of the data collection. Mm -hmm. Now, the next part of that process, right, for uh, ethnographic fieldwork um, and any kind of qualitative work is the analytical process and the interpretive process. And for me, that is always... Um, more challenging, I think, because it's not as straightforward, you know, the, and, and it's also sometimes not as exciting because oftentimes you're by yourself and you're working through these, um, all of these interviews and these uh, conversations that you've had, and now you're trying to put it together. You're trying to, in some ways, reduce all of what you've gathered to make some sort of a coherent argument. But um, 
but in ethnography, that's sort of, you know, what we do. And that's also some of the most exciting work because you've heard people and now it's sort of, you become the interpreter of sort of what's going on out there. And so that took a really long time. And finally, you know, after the analysis comes the part where you try to figure out how to present this work. Um, and initially, when I went into it, I thought I would be writing separate, you know, peer-reviewed papers. And um, that's how I was thinking about it. But then when I saw this larger story emerge, I felt like it needed to be told in a much um with much more space and much more depth and context. And so figuring out how to then take that analysis and present it in the form of a book, uh, that was the sort of the third step in this process. So it's been a very grueling process, I think. It took everything out of me. Um, mm -hmm. And I spent um, many years just sitting with the data and trying to... Um, make that leap between analysis and presentation. And in fact, during that time, you know, so I said I often went back to the food pantries because I needed to do that to still make sure it was real. Because after a while, when you're reading transcripts, you know, you wonder if you're imagining things uh, or if you, you wonder if you've gotten it wrong. And so mm -hmm. I think I've never gone back so much to the original source of my data as I have in this work, just mm -hmm. to make sure that, uh, I, that I have some confidence in what I'm seeing and what I'm interpreting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's a richness and a nuance to the arguments that you offer. And you do a really good job of coming back to the voices of those who typically are, are on the margin. And that, that sort of work only comes from a long-term commitment right? Staying with stories long enough to see how they evolve and change. And you were with these organizations across seasons, like literally, metaphorically, right? And um, I think it it's part of what makes ultimately the portraits that you offer believable. And they ring true because you move between the voices of individuals as shared with you during interviews and as you see lived out in front of you when you're in place to use your terms and then your analytic engagement with them. So you really are co-constructing this data. You're to use Laura Ellingson's terms, you're making data with people in the settings in which they live their lives. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. I, um, in many ways, I feel like you've been a witness to stories of people who, when I think about those who are elected officials, the individuals tasked with solving, addressing some of these seemingly intractable issues, many of those individuals have never been faced, um, with hunger, going to bed at night and not feeling like your stomach's full. And so integrating those voices, going back again and again to the site, right? To ensure that um, you've heard both 
uh, diversity of voices and that you're starting to see patterned regularities in um, what they're sharing with you, right? Everyone's story is unique, but there are also themes that cut across. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I've always, I've always considered it a, a privilege when individuals trust me enough to uh, co-create their story. And um, your book is a testament to, to your capacity to build that trust with, with individuals. One of those individuals that, that I'd like to bring into our conversation, you actually start your book with part of her story. And in your book, she's named Trinity. For listeners who haven't read your book yet, I'm going to read her words as you share them. Like so many things, it, Wick, really played a vital role in being able to get food and keeping my feet, my kids, and myself fed. At the same time, there was also stigma attached to it. From the case manager to what they would call the income maintenance people. So you go into the government services building and you fill out this form and the person on the other desk is not nice. Not always, but often, and actually outright cruel a lot of times. I've had that experience. And then you go to the grocery store and with your food stamps, you buy soda and chips. People look at you and glare at you. But if you buy fruits and vegetables, they're pissed off at you because you're buying things that they can't afford. And so no matter what you do, there's always this hmm. I mean, if you look back historically, what we were founded on, the Puritan beliefs, you work hard and you're going to get somewhere. That's a myth. I mean, the truth is that it's a wonderful myth and it's a wonderful thing to believe in because a small percentage of people will work really hard and everything is going to fall into place. The majority of people are going to work really hard but they're not going to have opportunities to meet their needs. So they need assistance. There's this idea that you've got some kind of character flaw or there's something wrong with who you are and the decisions that you've made. That's unfortunate. Shares Trinity. Page one, chapter one, you start the book, not with your voice, but, but with the voice of, of one of the people that you learned with. Um, when you listen back to her words right now and, and you think with that story, Rebecca, what led you to start with Trinity's voice? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, a few reasons I, I thought her words, uh, hers is one of those interviews that I kept going back to over and over again. And I thought her words so perfectly captured uh, the essence of this concept of neoliberal stigma. In fact, I think in some words, uh, some ways, in many ways, her words inspired the concept of neoliberal stigma, which I'm trying to advance to the book. Mm -hmm. This idea that you know the the logics of capitalism or neoliberalism intersect with class and gender, and in that space, black people, indigenous people, people of color, and black women in particular cannot win. There's just no emancipatory potential within being so trapped in those discourses. 
you just cannot find a way out. Um, and so for me, uh, in a very Fairian sense of the word, right? I, she's, I, you know, I also put her up front and center because she's also truly liberated in the sense of this heightened critical consciousness. She's completely aware of what is going on around her about these stigmatizing discourses that are circulating around her and how she fits into the social system and the food system. And, um, you know, so black feminist, um, uh, black feminists have talked about consciousness as a form of agency and resistance and as a, the sphere of freedom and an activism for especially historical, historically oppressed groups. And so this was, this, she was really the embodiment of that kind of resistance. Um, and so I knew I wanted to put that and put her, um, have her have that first word in the book. Um, and one of the other uh, reasons why it was so important not just to have her, but also to keep going back to these voices is because during the, you know, the many, many years that I was studying the literature, the existing literature on hunger and food insecurity, what really shocked me was how few of those articles or books actually had voices of people experiencing hunger. Um, I just, I, I, I intentionally started to look for them. Uh, to see, and I could literally count on maybe one hand the number of uh, pieces that actually presented voices or talked about people who had experienced um, hunger and food insecurity. So it was really important that uh, my book, and if I could, the most most of my book could be these voices, and not just voices hanging out there, loose, you know, in the atmosphere, but voices that were sort of contextualized. Uh, with uh, in the social, political, racial context. And so uh, that was important for me to do. And incidentally, I also actually um, ended the book with the words of Trinity. And the last mm -hmm. section of the book is called The Last Word because I wanted her to have the last word over there because, again, uh, it's such a deep and insightful critical consciousness where you know she talks about this impasse that we are at in the food system with food pantries. So, so, you know, so that, so that's why it was really important for me to do, um, you know, in sort of professional terms and how I think about my work. Um, but then there's also, I think for me, uh, a much more personal perspective as well um, that makes me want to center these voices of black indigenous uh, people I'm a recent immigrant to the United States, um, and um, I, I believe really strongly that I have an obligation and responsibility to Black and Indigenous communities. Uh, I know that I am here because they've put their bodies on the line for me to be here. Um, and something that I learned only after I came here was that uh, prior to the Civil Rights Movement, immigration policy was very strongly tilted towards European immigrants and favored uh, European immigration. And it was really the advocacy of Black and Indigenous people to have uh, folks from the third world country specifically be allowed to immigrate here uh, that has allowed me to come in to this country. So those policies shifted sometime in the 1960s. And of course, I didn't know this while I was um, immigrating and while I was, you know, writing my uh, 
applications for graduate school. But really, that's what allowed has allowed me to come here. So I do feel uh, so, a certain sense of solidarity with um, um, with Black women and with Indigenous women, uh, both because of our shared lived experiences, but also because of this history of um, of immigration. And I really wouldn't be here writing this book, um, you know, talking to you in this podcast, if it wasn't for those voices back then saying the things that they did and advocating for me to be here. So that's mm-hmm. sort of the more personal perspective on my work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that the people in the academy who I look to as boundary spanners, who I look to as people who are multilingual in a sense of being able to move between conceptual theoretical chewy ideas and the lived vocabularies of, of people as um, they live their lives in their families and in, in organizational contexts as citizens. I, I think there are not enough people who do that well. And I don't think that there are structures in the academy that reward that. And I, I, in part, um, I think explains why voices like Trinity are so missing from our research. Right. Um, so thank you for for integrating them and and honoring them and thinking with them, right? Because you do bring your voice and you bring your experience, and there is a role for your intellectual ideas, but you don't use those ideas to trump the experience and knowledge and expertise of people um, on the margins and otherwise you, you honor and respect that and you engage in dialogue from your own experience. And um, it's rare. And, and certainly for me, um, a hallmark of, of meaningful interpretive work. Thank you. That, that's really kind of you to say. And I think that's one of the struggles that I had in writing the book, you know, just trying to um, figure out how to on, honor these uh, voices and the people. Um, and, and I don't know that, um, I hope I did it to some extent, but I, I, I'm never quite sure. Mm-hmm. And until we actually have spaces where people can speak for themselves and we create those platforms, um, I think we're not there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you spent four years in two different organizational contexts, talked with a variety of different stakeholders, people who have a vested interest in issues of hunger, food access. Some people describe it as, as insecurity and food security. Other people describe it as food justice. I think you're part of that food justice movement, and and we'll talk about that. You spent time in these contexts, immersed yourself in in the literatures of your field, move between those stories of your discipline and the stories of the field to ultimately advance arguments. You've hinted at this, but I want to drill down a little deeper because I know that for part of our audience, they will not have heard of neoliberalism or neoliberal stigma. And I think that it's at the crux of 
some of the arguments that you make about the limits of charitable organizations as a primary point of access to address um, issues of hunger. And so I'm, I'm hoping if you can step back and talk to us about your understanding of neoliberalism generally and how that creates neoliberal stigma. Sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, neoliberalism is really a mouthful. Um, and to be quite honest, I wasn't entirely happy with that phrase neoliberal stigma because that's a mouthful too, but I just couldn't get around it. And it was just the most appropriate for what I was saying. So very briefly, neoliberalism is basically, it's a political economic theory. It's, so it's, it's, it's an idea of how a political system or an economic system should work. And it argues that the privatization of public resources is the best way to solve social problems. Um, and so it's sort of this, um, at least one of the cornerstones of conservative uh, ideology and practice. And so it sort of advances this idea that human well-being uh, and happiness is served best when business and free markets uh, take over and there's minimal government intervention. And so um, some of the policies that come out of a neoliberal framework are sort of a rolling back of public goods and services, um, welfare cuts, cuts to social programs. And there's sort of this single-minded focus on economic value or entrepreneurialism or business-mindedness. And if we can just be more entrepreneurial and creative in how we uh, make stuff, right, buy and sell and trade stuff, then uh, we will be serving the collective interest. And that's sort of this neoliberal mindset. Wealth is highly valued. Now, um, what a lot of scholars before me have talked about is this notion of neoliberal subjectivities. And this is really what this implies is when that political theory of, of neoliberalism, right, which is sometimes also called capitalism on speed, because that's sort of what it really is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when that political theory starts to uh, sort of penetrate our daily lives and our deepest thoughts and feelings, and now it's no longer this political theory that's operating out there, but it's actually in us and it's operating in us. So now we are seeing uh, and we're starting to think that people who are economically successful and economically productive are valuable. And then also then those who are not contributing to the economy or who we perceive to be taking away from the economy are not valued or devalued. So that's sort of the shift where this political theory, which is uh, which is, talks about how markets and governments should operate, now has sort of just almost sunk into our souls. And now that's what we think the world is and what it, and that's how we value people, uh, including ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so when these neoliberal um, ideologies become us uh, become subjective, right, enter us, that's when we start to use um, traits like um, or characteristics like hard work and personal responsibility and accountability. And we use all of these, these as um, markers to mark people e- either as inferior or superior. And in a sense, then, um, this sort of economic wealth becomes comes to symbolize and be equated with personal responsibility. And I think we're at that stage where, you know, we are, if you think about capitalism on speed, 
uh, we're at the stage where we almost don't care now even how that wealth was produced. Wealth simply humanizes individuals, and it's a symbol, um, um, and it's unquestioned, right? You are unquestionably of value because you are wealthy, and then the reverse is also true where you are devalued and nobody looks at you um, a second time when you're not wealthy. Mm-hmm. And then within that mindset, that neoliberal mindset, um, then we see things like you know people using welfare or entitlements or government sis- assistance as indicators of that lack of responsibility, responsibility or accountability. So sort of all of that is sort of rolled into this neoliberal mindset. And of course, you know, these are not things that we're consciously saying to ourselves, but they do, but they're operating sort of as a, sub, as a subtext. Uh, and so oftentimes we're not even aware that we're making these connections. And then I think finally, and this is um, one that I, that a lot of the book is centered around this idea that we have, we have put poverty and criminality into the same frame. Right, so that is really neoliberal stigma, where now people who are poor and using government assistance are seen as criminals or seen as suspicious. Uh, and when that starts to happen, what we've really done is we've taken poverty and criminal criminalized it, and we've put poverty and criminality into the same frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know folks have written about this before and you know so those quant writes about punishing the poor and books about disciplining the poor and when and in that literature you know they're looking at um, structures and infrastructures like uh, prison fare and work fare and penalties and the surveillance that poor people undergo and in my work what I did was I took that sort of that similar framework that neoliberal mindset and I'm sort of arguing in the book that charity and charitable infrastructures are also places where people are disciplined and surveilled. And it's also a space where uh, poverty and criminality are put into the same frame. So when I talk about suspicious skin or people looking suspicious, right, um, that's sort of this, this neoliberal mindset where these two things become connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that's sort of that, that, that sort of that tie between neoliberalism as a political economic theory, that neoliberalism as subjectivity and within us, and then how we use it um, to frame the world around us. Mm. So neoliberalism as a mindset, an economic theory, a subjectivity or identity construction, how we think of ourselves and others. Exactly. A set of practices that, to infer from what you're saying, really propose human well-being as connected to liberating the individual entrepreneurial spirit. Right. Exactly. So solutions to systemic issues become individualized. Exactly. It's no longer a political problem, right? So in this space, hunger and food insecurity are no no longer a political problem, but it's an individual problem to be solved by individual means. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that allows then the government to discount its responsibility and its accountability to its citizens. And then, of course, you know, the force of law and rules and regulations are put in place 
that support this ideology. So that's the other thing. All of these ideas operate in the context of environments where um, that legally uphold these these ideologies. Mm-hmm. So if you think about, and the two that I talk about in the book are the Welfare Reform Act of 1996, um, also known as the, I, incredibly, it's also known as the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act. So you see that personal responsibility inscribed in the very title of the act. So that was one. Uh, and the other was charitable choice. And I think this is important for my book, the charitable choice legislation, because not only does neoliberalism as a political economic theory, not only does it cut back and roll back on government services, but it also encourages charitable act- actions. So when we say privatized, right, that it's the private ha- privatization of public resources and that's the best way to solve problems, it happens through two means, uh, increasing business, but also increasing charity. So the charitable choice legislation in 2002 was this really big legislation which basically allowed uh, charitable organizations to get government funding to run their charitable work. So it's no longer the government now uh, with their programs, but charities act as arms of the government uh, in mobilizing programs. Hi, folks. Lynn, breaking in for just a second. We've been talking to Dr. Rebecca D'Souza, a professor from the Department of Communication at the University of Minnesota at Duluth. We've been talking about her work on hunger and organizing access to food through food pantries. Her critically acclaimed book, Feeding the Other, Whiteness, Privilege, and Neoliberal Stigma, is published by MIT Press. You can purchase her book, published through MIT Press, or at Amazon. Additionally, you can download a free copy, PDF copy, from the MIT Press website. For your convenience, we've placed a link to this on our Facebook page. Okay, back to the conversation. One of the reasons your work haunts me and voices like the voice of of trinity that really reflect the the arguments that you're making these voices haunt me for deeply personal reasons rebecca i grew up with a biological mom who her entire side intergenerationally in my family um Many worked minimum wage jobs never to get beyond the poverty level. And I have vivid memories of um, going to the grocery store with with my mom and my grandma, who I lived with for part of my life. And it, we, we were the beneficiaries of food stamps and also charitable uh, food pantries, which I am continue to be grateful for, for the safety nets that they do provide. But I, even as a teenager, I would devise strategies for going through the grocery store and helping, helping my grandma and my mom 
organize and and pick up the food, but I would always leave the grocery store before they did because I knew that they would pay with food stamps. And I I had internalized the stigma that comes from that, right? The implied assumption that you're not working hard enough. You're not making the best choices. And there's one memory um, enshrined for me that stands out above all above all others. I, I must have been like a, a sophomore in high school, and I was in a civics class. Rebecca, I remember exactly where I was in the class. I was sitting in the back of the room, the back row, and I was I was a, a good student. Um, and education for me was a scaffold and allowed me to see possibilities. It was a safe haven. It also became the place where I could critique right that safety. But mm-hmm. I remember sitting in the back row and the teacher started talking about his recent trip to the grocery store. And he was lamenting how oftentimes there are people who are using food stamps and they buy things like prime rib and he wow. can't even afford to buy prime rib. And I'm sitting in the back of the room Right. Yeah. So you no knew doubt exactly turning, what Trinity right? was talking about. Yeah. Oh, like scarlet red. And I, I remember in my mind thinking, okay, what did my grandma buy at the store? Did she buy a roast? Like, what did they buy? Is he talking about me? Did he see my family at the store? Are we not, are we abusing a system? All of that, right? Uh, you captured in an idea Right, listening to the voices of people, and also bringing in right uh, the literatures across disciplines, um, and that concept of neoliberal stigma, while it might be a mouthful, I think is movable across contexts. Right, because there are very few public health issues that are not privatized. Right, it, right, it, right. It permeates all of our experience. But I'm also humble enough to, to tell you, Rebecca, that although when, when I was in college and I was pursuing a degree in sociology, I was, I was very aware of, of gendered inequities and socioeconomic differences. Um, I wish I could go back to my younger self, though, and problematize the raced nature of those experiences because while I might have lived in a family that was disadvantaged in some ways, it was never because of my skin tone. And one of the things that you do in this book is you argue that you cannot disconnect neoliberal stigma from whiteness um, and and you understand whiteness as systemic privilege. And I think that is something that for readers, it might make them feel uncomfortable um, and it might make listeners feel uncomfortable. But I think it's um, now more than ever in our society, we, we need to own that and we need to to think about it and talk about it. Um, so I think the discomfort is necessary. Talk to us about 
how you see whiteness as interconnected to neoliberal stigma and, and to the structural patterns of inequity that um, are pervasive in the hunger industrial complex. Right. Um, so I, I do think that whiteness um, and the racism that emerges from it is tied to every pattern of structural injustice that we see today. In the book, I say that, you know, neoliberal stigma, it circulates around uh, black indigenous and people of color and also white people, but it's especially intensified in the presence of darker skin tones. Um, so one of the reasons, you know, I mean, so you talk about, you know, you just talked about and shared that story, Lynn, about feeling that stigma, you had internalized it. Um, and and that's real, you know, so... Um, and I and I and it's and it's real for the fifty million people who suffer from hunger and food insecurity today, mm-hmm. uh, and many of those are white people, mm-hmm. uh, and some of those are black and indigenous people. And we know, in terms of uh, the prevalence of hunger, you know, it's almost double in communities of color. Right when mm-hmm. uh, we look at the statistics, it's you know, hunger and food insecurity. It's at about ten percent, and among white people, but about 25% and uh, among black communities, um, 25% in Hispanic and Latino communities, and then anywhere between 50 to 80% in indigenous communities. So, um, so that's when I say it's intensified, it's felt more closely, it's experienced more closely, uh, um, more harshly in these communities of color. Mm-hmm. And it is tied to patterns of structural injustice. So, you know, even as we are talking today, uh, you know, we, we're recording on, you know, Monday, June 1st, and it's been exactly one week since um, George Floyd, an African-American man, was killed in South Minneapolis, not far from where I'm sitting in Duluth um, and in a location where I've been very often because my husband's family is from there um, and it killed in broad daylight, right? I mean, so I feel like um, in terms of connecting personal and political uh, his life and his story is also sort of running through my mind, even as we are sort of uh, doing this interview about a very different topic. But I feel, um, you know, that that I, I felt a similar kind of outrage even while doing my interviews and listening to what people of color were saying about how they experienced um, stigma and the experiences of racism. Um, and that sort of just came out in the conversations because I think it is so impossible to talk about being oppressed in terms of food and not talk about your racial oppression. Um, so when we when I talk about whiteness in the book, it's um, I, I I define it as a position of structural advantage. Um, it's a standpoint or a position in the world. It sort of stems from material privileges and social privileges about social, economic, and political power. And then I use um, uh, the work of geographers, uh, and I really like their work, Kobayashi and Peek, and they say that, you know, whiteness has everything to do with not being black. Uh, mm-hmm. And those words sort of rung in my mind as I was thinking about um, the concerns that this book deals with. So it's every, it has everything to do with not being black. Um, it's living in privileged and virtually all white neighborhoods. 
with good schools and safe streets and these moral values. And so in the third chapter of my book, where I talk about Lisa, who's this volunteer, a white woman who's this volunteer at the Chum Food Shop, I mean, she was, that was her positionality. Mm-hmm. She lived in an all-white neighborhood, came from privilege. Her child goes to a good school. And um, and yet there's, and, and because of that, right, there's this complete separation from how communities of color are living uh, and dying. Um, mm-hmm. And so whiteness for me, I, 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 in the book and now even, I see it as sort of this, uh, it's the, it's the water, it's the environment in which neoliberal stigma flourishes. Mm-hmm. Um, and this whiteness, and especially as I saw in, in, the, in how my interviewees sort of talked about um, hunger and food insecurity, and the white folks, right, who did these interviews, they tended to be very uncritical of systems and rules. So where Trinity was, had this heightened critical consciousness about her, um, and where, um, where, and, and a lot of my clients displayed that, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of the participants who were clients displayed that sort of, you know, they knew that the rules were not fair because they've, they've tried. Uh, but volunteers who were in positions of privilege and power, they thought the rules were fine and they tended to be uncritical of systems. So if they were critical, it was at a very sort of, uh, atmospheric level, you know, sort of in a vacuum. Um, and they tended to think that the system was fair and so oftentimes, so sometimes broke the rules, but then oftentimes also did not like to break the rules, even at the food pantry. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and in that chapter, I think, you know, more beyond just whiteness, I think what I try to do is also uh, unpack um, this, this standpoint of white womanhood, right? Because there's this intersection of gender and race that I'm sort of playing out in that chapter. Uh, and I think I try to, right? And, and the reason I'm unpacking white womanhood in particular is because food tra- fat pantry spaces are full of white women, uh-huh, uh-huh. right? Over there to either organize or as volunteers or working um, as staff. And in fact, much of um, even the welfare system is comprised of, of, of white women who they do this work, right? So um, they're sort of at the front lines of this work. And for that reason, I problematize it in, in, in the book as well. Uh, and while I don't really say this because for lack of space in the book, but there's sort of this um, underlying there is this notion or this underlying notion that white women have occupied a really unfortunate role in sort of the history of racism, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's a lot of literature on this. They've provided and still do provide some of the central supports for the structures of the system of racism, Mm -hmm. either as employees, as those frontline workers, as educators, right? Even our school systems are um, are predominantly uh, run by white women, Right, it's something like seventy percent of teachers are white, um, as wives, as girlfriends, as friends. So they're all of these really kind of—they're um, not necessarily the CEOs, but they're sort of these intermediary uh, uh, power structures. Um, and so, so I was sort of interrogating that mm-hmm. in in that particular chapter, and saying we have to kind of think about 
who these volunteers are, right? If we, uh, you know, so, I mean, it's, it's sort of, you know, this is where it gets unsettling, right? Because uh, when we think about the history of white women, especially when you're looking at the politics of um, white supremacy, uh, I mean, there have been books books written about this, right? I mean, um, I think it was McRae, uh, Elizabeth McRae, and she writes this book um, about moms who played a role in the white supremacy movement during uh, in the South during uh, Jim Crow, um, and it's sort of. Um, and I think, and she calls it sort of the foot soldiers. They were the, the female foot soldiers of the Jim Crow South. Mm-hmm. So now if you think about what happened to those female foot soldiers, right? And after the civil rights movement, and this is the argument that some of the theorists make and uh, writers have made that after the, including Frazier, Nancy Frazier, right? I mean, after the uh, civil rights movement, Many of the women who were part of that movement now started to work in charitable places mm-hmm, and spaces. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so that really then we have to, so that makes it really important, an important question to ask, you know, um, if white women are also today the foot, sh- foot soldiers of charitable infrastructures, uh, what is problematic about that? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the socialization of white women as well today, right? This idea of the doing good and self-sacrifice, you know, they're so central to the identities of white women. And Alice Fothergill, she wrote this really, um, for me, which was a very important uh, article that talked about uh, white women in charity. And this was in North Dakota that she was writing about and disaster assistance, but it still really made sense. Uh, where when your identity is so tied to doing good and self-sacrifice, but but what does that mean when you haven't included an anti-racist aspect to that kind of work that you're doing, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. and, the, and, and, you know, and, the, and, and the unfortunate reality is that you can be, that one can be a complete feminist, right? And be progressive on so many issues and still contribute to a white supremacist agenda. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Unwittingly, things, unwittingly, those two things are not necessarily uh, don't necessarily go together. You know, the same way that one can be anti-racist, right, and still engage in misogynistic practices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. and and the only way, right? I mean, in the end of my book, that I say is, you know, that the one of the ways, at least for me, one of the really important ways is to start to recognize that and then to start to build a critical consciousness around that and then, of course, intervene. Um, but it's, but yeah, I mean, it's unsettling and it's uncomfortable for me as well to write about these things because, I mean, it's like one of the worst things in the world to have to tell people who think they're doing good in the world that maybe it's not so good and that maybe you need to think about a different way of doing good in the uh-huh, world. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So... Mm-hmm. So, so that's for me is how sort of whiteness plays out in food pantry spaces. It's in this interaction between uh, volunteers and clients, and it's how uh, the the rules of engagement in these spaces are defined and set up by p- 
people who run those organizations and and operate those food pantry spaces. And those typically uh, tend to be white. And so there's this incredible distance between the volunteers and the clients. And it's not one, you know, I've heard this, you know, even among um, the volunteers of the food pantry, you know, say, well, we try to build connections uh, with our clients. And I, I don't know that it's about building connections. Like, it's just not the, the structure that allows for genuine connections. Mm-hmm. When you're mm-hmm. at such a disadvantage, when you're asking, you know, begging for food at a food pantry. And I say begging because that's how some clients talked about it. You know, they said beggars can't be choosers. So, mm-hmm. right. So, I mean, mm-hmm. if you're, so how do you set up an, a, a place where there can be a genuine conversation and connection when there are, when there is this power over, it's not power with people, it's a power over people. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's another way in which uh, people, poor people are disciplined, right? Mm-hmm. And of course this happens with poor white people, uh, but it's intensified uh, in communities of color. Yeah, yeah. Coming full circle, from stem to stern of your book, you make a compelling argument that charitable food pantries are entrepreneurial, neoliberal, individualized solutions to hunger. Um, Many listeners, myself included, have contributed to them, even volunteered at them. And you carefully note in your book that oftentimes we view such spaces as exempt from critical interrogation because they are charitable in nature. In nature, and and um, that's a an enshrined goodness. But ultimately, a key takeaway from your book is that food pantries, in their current form just might be contributing to the very problem that they seek to address. Can you talk to us about that? Um, If you had an opportunity to to speak to people who who organize food pantries, how, how could you translate what you're doing in a way that on the ground could help to re-envision those spaces? Sure. Um, So I think, uh, you know, the big, one of the ideas that my book is centered around is this idea that hunger is not a technical problem that needs to be solved by pushing more food at people, but it's a political problem that needs a political solution. Mm. And unfortunately, charity has become one of those ways in which we don't solve hunger, but we manage hunger today. Mm-hmm. And it's an individualized solution. And for me, it's a way in which we discipline the poor. Um, it's a way of exerting power over people. And so even though people think they're doing good, the charitable way is actually uh, a way of exerting power over people. Mm-hmm. Um, charity, what I found through my work is that it silences participation and resistance. People mm-hmm. don't feel like they have the right to ask for things 
old to ask for good food, um, that they have to just accept what is given. Mm-hmm. So it sort of silences a true dialogue and true conversation. Because, of, because in, again, in a charitable framework, we don't question the giver or the gift. We just take what we're given. So then charity then is not anymore about right, a right to food or the right to adequate food. It's sort of just this um, infrastructure that we've created to give out or dole out substandard products and services. Mm-hmm. And it sort of reinforces this social distance and hierarchy between givers and receivers sort of in this us and them kind of a way, right? And so that's sort of a lot of what I talk about in the book, this us and them distinction. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think the other... Uh, so in terms of... Um, how they contribute, that, that's sort of how they contribute to uh, this problem. Instead of giving people more power and empowering people politically, and I don't think food pantries see their role as that, right? Because their role has always been defined as distributing food. So this is what I argue at the end of the book, that you know we need to sort of rethink the role of food pantries. It's not just distributing food, but also engaging in larger political processes and giving people voice and allowing people to participate and also resist and to join in that resistance, you know, whether it's volunteers or organizers, to join in people's uh, resistance to these systems that oppress. I loved the final chapter of your book because you came full circle and invited readers and now invite listeners to reconsider these spaces um, as activist spaces, right? Moving beyond the collecting, the distributing of food, right? And and they don't have to be limited to, to charitable spaces, but in your terms can be political and politicized spaces with the potential for consciousness raising. Um, what might that look like on the ground, Rebecca? Sure. Um- so, you know, uh, Antoine was one of the African-American men I interviewed in the book, and he, I, I have many excerpts from uh, what he said. And he's 50-something, and uh, his story was really interesting and, and really got me because he talked uh, really clearly about, again, with that sense of critical consciousness about racism that he's experienced and also growing up in the Deep South and, you know, these memories of Jim Crow uh, still fresh in his mind, almost like it was yesterday. And he says, you know, um, a decent home, a decent food, knowing you got a roof over your head, that's not a lot to ask for. It shouldn't be that way. We've got so much in this world. Um, He was also the person who said that he would be really happy to be part of a political uh, struggle and part of this fight for food justice. Uh, And so I think what food pantries can do and what it looks like on the ground is to uh, have them become part of these political processes, you know, to sort of recognize their place in the food system and understand how these racial and class-based hierarchies operate in those systems. I mean, what I find is oftentimes, you know, volunteers come in and they and, and they leave, and um, there's not any sort of consciousness raising that goes on among volunteers. You know, they understand their job is just being there to sort of give out food. Uh, 
but how can we change that? How can we make them uh, do something more? Not just mm-hmm. building connections between volunteers and clients, but what if we engage both volunteers and clients in political processes, have them both advocate for the hungry and food insecure? I think that's a much more powerful way of engaging volunteers and clients. And it also gets at that um, uh, gets at the problem that this is not an equitable space and they're not on equal footing. But I think by engaging in political processes, it forces volunteers to understand who their clients are. And, and it sort of forces, forces them to be accountable um, to standing with clients and being in solidarity with uh, clients. So I think, I think that, for me, is sort of the big um, thing that um, food pantries can do. So to sort of to see themselves is more than just giving out food, but actually to bring about uh, changes in the food system by advocating. I mean, if we think about it, there you know there are something like forty thousand or sixty thousand food pantries operating in the in the in the U.S. That's a lot of um, infrastructure. There are people in there, thousands of people who come in as volunteers who organize these spaces. I mean, that's a lot of voice right there. Uh, that can be used to bring about long-term sustainable change. Um, mm-hmm. And those changes come in the form of changing the food system, but also recognizing that hunger is also just, um, what should I say, subterfuge, you know, for poverty. It's, it's a symptom of poverty. And so the fight for livable wages, increased SNAP benefits, you know, college education, universal health care, these are all part of the hunger problem. And perhaps we need to stop piecing them out uh, and if we put them together, we'll be fighting for, um, for what we really need, comprehensive change in our system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Rebecca, if I'm hearing you, in many ways, it's moving from food access right, and food security to food justice. Right. And our, and our food pantries now are about access. And yep. how can we move them towards a justice-oriented framework? Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I say is that, you know, I, I don't want food pantries to go away tomorrow because mm-hmm. 40 mm-hmm. million people depend on them, right, or, and more. Um, mm-hmm. And people, you know, just as you noted in your story, right, people are using SNAP benefits and they're using food pantries because food pantries are actually part of the way in which the government manages the problem. So we cannot get rid of them because they are right now an essential way in which we manage hunger and food insecurity. It's, it's not coincidental. They, they are there because um, that's the way um, governance has decided that we're going to solve this problem. So we can't get rid of them right away. But, you know, one of the things that um, me and some, you know, activists and food justice activists, you know, would like to see, for instance, is an exit plan for food Uh countries, you know, 10 Uh years, 20 years, um, 10 years, hopefully, right? How do you exit out of this sort of technical dole out food to allowing people to access food on their own terms and in their own way, right? Uh And, Uh and that takes their, their different solutions, right? I mean, we have things like, well, first of all, increase that benefit. So people have just have more to spend at the grocery store, um, but then there are also, you know, the Good Food Movement has talked about urban gardens and uh, food sovereignty, right? How do we have people grow their own food? So 
a combination of um, these strategies is what we need to move towards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is is not just a scholarly exercise for you, Rebecca. And I want to make sure that we save time to also reflect on your article in Health Communication that's available public access for listeners of this podcast. It was published in Health Communication. And in that article, you reflect on the very personal experiences that you had in this professional journey, multi-year project. Um, You, in that article, among other work, you draw on the work of Eve Tuck, and I, I want to let you know, Rebecca, that you introduced me to her work, mm-hmm. and I have now started to go more deeply into her work because of, of your work, but y- you draw on her work to distinguish between damage-centered research and desire-based research, and I want to make sure that we talk about this because I don't want listeners to leave Um with a cynical viewpoint, because that's not how I leave your work. Uh, critical consciousness, yes, but there's also hope in there, and that hope exists for. Uh, um, that's that's hope with intent on your part, um, and it becomes more evident in in the healthcom essay when you kind of are retrospectively reflecting on on this process. So, let me see if I can weave that into a question, Rebecca. <laughs> Um, can you talk to us about the difference between kind of damage-centered research and a desire-based approach and how you aspired to the latter? Yeah. So, you know, this was a very influential article for me as well. And, you know, the work of um, Eve Tuck, who is an Indigenous scholar. Uh, so she sort of draws this distinction between damage-centered research, which she says is... Um, uh, one of you know one of the major activities in this kind of research is to document the pain and loss that an individual or community or tribe experiences, uh, and then you sort of show so you're showing how huge this problem is, and then demanding a change based on that on those numbers or that argument that you've made. And she says, you know, this sounds commonsensical, and this is sort of how social research goes, and this is typically what we do. Right? We start with the problem, we say how big it is, and then we make a case for why it needs to be solved. And she said it's well-intentioned, but um, what does damage-centered research do to people in the community who are reading this work? Right. So she says, um, it's, uh, especially when this kind of oppression singularly defines the people, what does it do to them? How does this decades of this kind of research affect people who live in those communities. You know, years and years of seeing yourself represented in statistics and in articles and in numbers and in uh, media reports about how bad the problem in your community is. And so she says, you know, um, people start to feel defeated and broken. And that's a possible consequence of this kind of work. So even though it makes sense and it's um, how we've been trained to do research, it could have a devastating effect on the very communities that we are trying to empower. And so then she argues for what she calls desire-based research frameworks. 
And she says, these are frameworks that essentially flip, flip the scripts of blame. Um, they make a distinction between sort of the stereotype and the, what she calls the, you know, the human type. That means you're no longer just showing one story of degradation or defeat or brokenness, but now you're showing people who, and people in contexts that are layered uh, with meaning. Um, and I really um, like this, you know, this one sentence that she writes, which sort of stuck with me through writing the book was this. She says, we can desire to be critically conscious and desire the new Jordans, uh, you know, even if those desires are conflicting. So, you know, Air Jordans on the one side and critically conscious, and we've all experienced that. So I really loved how she framed that and sort of uh, in some ways gave me license to um, show people layered, that I didn't have to write in one way and that I didn't have to write about one thing, but I could show the multiple sides um, that people have. And so in the chapter where I talk about the meanings of food and health, you know, there I talk about, you know, the, the foodie type meals that hungry and food insecure people are making, you know, they're making these crazy smoothies and, um, you know, and uh, sauteing arugula and, uh, you know, and putting it in their pasta. I mean, so it's this, because there's so much part of the good food discourse and that's what human beings do. You know, we, we are creative and we do different things even when we're poor. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, 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 and that's resistance, right? So, um, so and that's and she uses this term complex personhoods and she's drawing it from previous literature but you know for me she does a really good job unpacking sort of what that means complex personhood you know people who both resist but then are also complicit in uneven social structures so um so one of the i guess chapters that i had a, that i really struggled with was um the culture of suspicion and this was where i talk about how people in food pantry settings and these were clients how they exert this sort of horizontal violence and that's a term that Apollo Freire uses where they start to be suspicious of each other and it was really hard for me to write that because on the one hand I didn't want to show you know I, I didn't want to say that I didn't want because I felt like it made people look worse and there are already stereotypes that are floating around and circulating around people who are hungry and food insecure so this would just add to that and that was me sort of thinking more politically about how my work could be used. Um, but then I realized that, no, I mean, if I don't tell that uh, story and that side, then I'm also stereotyping. I'm not showing the complex personhood, right? The complicated people that exist in complicated situations and structures. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like that had to become part of it as well. Um, and, you know, she uses this really interesting term called survivance. And she says it's sort of this, um, in an, it's an indigenous sense of presence that includes both survival and resistance mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. together, right? And, and, and that's sort of what our work should sort of strive to show. And, and, and that happens by... Um, you know, and here she's uh, drawing on like Deleuze and Guattari, but talking about like assemblage, you know, how in practice it's sort of putting together the bits and pieces from different spaces uh, and of different people that come together to sort of make this whole. So almost, a, it almost sounds to me like in terms of methodology, in methodology, it's 
very similar to crystallization, right? This kaleidoscope mm-hmm. that you present a kaleidoscope. Um, and that's, that's how you get away from showing people as completely uh, passive and, you know, and or people as being completely uh, sort of agents of change because really realistically people are somewhere in the middle and they're sometimes one and sometimes the other and sometimes both in the same sentence you know so uh, (laughs) so I think that was really um, important for me Uh, I I think if I had sat with the work longer I may have presented it in a different way and that's really what I'm talking about in this particular article because I feel like uh, for people reading who are experiencing hunger and food insecurity, I might not see that much hope in the book. Uh, although I, at least not until they get to the end, you know, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. the problem. And uh, oftentimes we don't read entire books. So um, I might have placed hope more prominently in every segment of the book, just as mm-hmm. I did people's voices. Um and I, and I think if I had to change what I, how I wrote up that book, it, that would be the one thing um, that I would do because I don't, um, because I think that it's never our job as, as elites. And, you know, I consider myself um, an elite at this point. I, you know, work in an elite institution and I'm middle class and I've never experienced hunger and food insecurity. So it's never my job or my role to say that we are hopeless or or that there is no hope i mean that would be just a travesty because there's always hope and that's certainly what i saw in the voices of people there i mean hope is a language of the oppressed and it it's really interesting to me that um and i didn't write this in the paper itself but um so you know i was talking about paulo Freire and how i have been so inspired by his work so his you know, his big sort of magnum opus was Pedagogy of the Oppressed. But then he wrote this other book called Pedagogy of Hope. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when I read that book, it's really him reflecting on the writing of the Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And he, which is again, you know, so it's really interesting because he tells you like what went on through his mind as he was writing or what are the situations that led him to write particular pieces in Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And so it was really fascinating, especially for me after having written a book and then seeing him sort of reflect on that. And he talks about hope as sort of this ontological necessity. And, and he unpacks it a little, but he, but for me, and he doesn't really say this in the book, but I think he kind of titled that, that second book, Pedagogy of Hope, because I think he must have realized the same thing, that pedagogy of the oppressed was perhaps didn't have enough hope in it, mm, mm, and that it, that he was writing about oppressed people, uh, and while I think there's hope in it, it may not have seemed as hopeful because there was so much work to be done in that book, uh, you know, so much work that people had to do in terms of building a critical consciousness, um, and the practice was so, you know, the, it, it's such an uphill battle, right? I mean to get rid of this oppression, right? And to fight the oppression that perhaps he didn't feel it was hopeful enough. And so this title of the second book is Pedagogy of Hope. So, um, so that was really interesting mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Rebecca, thank you for your work. Thank you for bringing a communicative lens to center stage in thinking about complicated challenges like hunger, which is not for a lack of supply of food, um, most certainly. It's interesting because when I talk about what it is that I do and how storytelling is, is a passion, um, I think it's easy to misunderstand that, right? Um, certainly, mm -hmm. I appreciate a good book, a novel, a documentary, a movie. We tell stories at, at the kitchen table, right, on the front porch, in, in the public news, and those personal stories are important. You honor those stories in, in your research. But I'm interested in how those are connected to the broader narratives of our culture. And ultimately, in sum, what I love about this book is how you argue that fundamentally we need to shift the stigmatizing narratives that circulate around hunger in our culture because those meta-narratives uphold that unjust food system and you argue that they can prevent systemic change. So if we want to think about that systemic change, communication has to be a part of that. Right. We, have to, we have to shift the narratives about what causes hunger and who the hungry are. And um, you offer us an analysis that gets us closer um, to imagining otherwise. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful. So thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Lynn. Really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Listeners, thanks for joining Dr. Rebecca D'Souza and I for this episode of Defining Moments podcast. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Gerald's Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On our Facebook page, we'll provide links to Rebecca's recent article. And remember, you can purchase, purchase her book on Amazon. Importantly, you can also download a free PDF copy of her book from the MIT Press website. And for your convenience, we'll place a link to this on our Facebook page. We hope you'll take the time to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcast. And as always, I hope that you go in peace and, and love one another. Mm -hmm.